This is a stern letter. And so this morning, we will look at this seventh letter, looking at, at, chap- at uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 18 as our text. And next week, we'll continue the balance. Uh, as we look at this passage, I've divided it under the following outline. One, we see the complacency in this church. Secondly, the caution that Jesus gives, because later on there is a call to repentance. Thirdly, we see the condition in this church. And fourthly, Jesus prescribes the cure uh, to this congregation as well. So the complacency, 14 to 15, the caution, verse 16, the condition, verse 17, and the cure in verse 18. Well, let's look at the complacency. Verse 14 and 15. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would, you are, you are either cold or hot. Here again we see Jesus, if you keep your Bibles open please, you will see that Jesus is addressing this letter to the angel of the church. And I said this previously, he's writing to the minister of the church I believe. And notice how Jesus identifies himself. These are the words, he says, of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So we have a, a threefold identity of who Jesus is. Well, let's briefly look at these descriptions. The Amen. Now we use the word Amen all the time, don't we? Right? In our prayers. We say Amen at the end, I trust. If you hear a sermon being preached, or somebody says, praise the Lord, you might say Amen to that brother. Right? Amen. What does it actually mean? The Amen. Jesus says that he is the Amen. Well, what does it mean? Dr. Asti Sproul, a um, well-known reformed theologian, puts it this way. The term itself is rooted in a Semitic word that means truth. And the utterance of Amen is an acknowledgement that the word that has been heard, whether a word of praise, a word of prayer, or a sermonic exhortation is valid. That is, Sure and binding. Even in antiquity, the word Amen was used in order to express a pledge, to fulfill the terms of a vow, a promise. The word Amen is used in corporate worship. It is used as a response to prayer. For example, in corporate worship, we have this in in, in Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say Amen, praise the Lord. It's also used as a response to prayer when we conclude our prayers. I was looking through the, the Heidelberg Catechism, which is uh, the, the subordinate standards of the Reformed Church. We have the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Reformed Church has the Heidelberg Catechism. And I uh, came out, as you know, from the Reformed Church and memorized this, uh, this catechism, the Heidelberg one. Uh, the word Amen means this. Uh, Amen means it is true and certain. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of him. I desire this of him. So when Jesus says that he is the Amen, it conveys the idea of trustworthiness. For example, in, one, in Second Corinthians, we have this. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our Amen to God for his glory. So in Jesus, look at the text there. For all the promises of God find their yes 
in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our Amen to God for his glory. So when Jesus says, I am the Amen, when he writes to this church and he speaks to us this morning, he is saying, I am the trustworthy one. I am the promises of God revealed in me. And he speaks to this church. Further, he says, is the faithful and true witness. So this Amen is elaborated in the same faithful and true witness. That is, whatever he speaks is true. There is no error in Jesus or his word. And this word is true. And we see this affirmed at the end of the book of Revelation. For example, Revelation 21 and verse 5. These words are faithful and true. So we believe the scriptures. We believe what Jesus says. Because he is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. We can trust him because it is his word. And so we rely upon him, correct? We can trust... Um, I like that, Tim. Hey? More connect nights, I'll be there. <laughs> Alright? Amen to that. That's true. We can trust him. And so he is the faithful and the true witness. We put our faith, we put our trust, we put our confidence in this living Amen. The faithful and true Witness And Jesus goes beyond and he identifies himself as the beginning of God's creation. In fact, the Greek text would have it as the ruler of God's creation. He is the beginning. He is the one who has established everything. It is in and through him that the world was created. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And you look at Colossians, because in the book of Colossians chapter 4, you see Laodicea is mentioned. And in Colossians chapter 1, we, we see the amazing work of Jesus there as the Creator. And, and Paul, writing to the Colossian church, makes the point that Jesus is the very preeminence of God in creation. So he says to this church, the beginning, I'm the beginning of God's creation. I'm the, not, not just the beginning, I'm the ruler of God's creation. I am the creator in the flesh. What a reminder. And so he says to this church, this church, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds because he is omniscient. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. See, lukewarm is neither hot nor cold. Uh, I have my coffees uh, reasonably hot. Uh, when I go out with Rose, she orders a coffee and she says to the person, Give me a doubly hot coffee. Right? Uh, <laughs> the water has to be piping hot. For me, I can't handle that, so I'll have a hot coffee. But I have a habit of making a cup of tea in the evenings. And I'll sit down with Rose, we'll have a cup of tea, but she's has drunk a cup, and my, sometimes I keep my cup and I go to the office and I do something, I come back and my cup of tea has become all lukewarm. I still drink it. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's just not right. Okay, and we, we all know that, right? 
So you see this. The, the, the lukewarm is neither hot nor cold. A, a form, and, and Jesus is saying here, it's about a form of a Christian commitment or conversion. Or, or conviction, sorry. You see, it is not from the heart. And so, there is a sense that Jesus speaks here and he says, I wish you were either refreshingly cold, that would be of great help, or really hot, which is of help as well. But to be lukewarm, there is a problem. And so Jesus addresses this church. I wish you were either one or the other. That was a real problem, friends, in this particular church that we have here this morning. And this church was so lukewarm, it, was, it had lost its wholehearted commitment to Jesus. It has lost connection with the Savior. And therefore, Jesus is disgusted with what was going on in this church. He is sickened by them. Have a look at your text here this morning. I know that you are you neither hot nor cold. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And we will come to that in a moment. See, he is sickened by them. He despises this kind of complacency. He sees this as being complacent in their state, in their spirit. It's a little bit of Christianity, but there is no passion that is going on in this place. And Jesus writes and he says, I am the Amen. I am the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. They were really indeed tepid friends. That's the point, isn't it? Though Laodicea was rich and a wealthy city, it had a water problem. And Jesus uses the imagery that is derived from the water supply to this city to make the point to this church. The hot springs from Heropolis, a distant about maybe 15 kilometers, sent water of medicinal quality down to Laodicea. And by the time the water arrived through the aqueducts, through the pipes to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. By contrast, Colossae was blessed with springs producing refreshing water that was cold and pure. And either way, when the water reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm. The point is this, as one writer puts it, hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless for either purpose and can serve only for as an emetic, that is, to vomit. This church was lukewarm towards Jesus. And so Jesus gives them a word of caution. Have a look at verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Terrible, isn't it? I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, this is a, a, a statement that Jesus says, I'm about to, in fact, vomit you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. That is, it is said that at the time, as I said, the water arrived here, it built a calcium carbonate in this water system, and therefore it had a nauseating effect on anyone who drank it. And the Laodiceans themselves felt like spitting out their water. And so Jesus uses the same image of spitting to express the worthlessness of their complacency. 
And so they were familiar with what Jesus was saying. The original word means to vomit. Have you ever had a feeling of that? Or to just vomit? It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, I'm about to vomit. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You are so disgusting. What does it mean like, friends, to be really lukewarm? What does a lukewarm church actually look like? You see, the word lukewarm is tepid. It is a metaphor of the condition of the heart, the soul fluctuating. It is the lack of a fervor of love. When the spiritual temperature was taken on this church, sadly the result was lukewarmness. What does a lukewarm church actually look like? What does a lukewarm Christian look like? What do you think? It's half-heartedness. It is without zeal. It is going through the motions of church, perhaps. It is not having a burning heart for Jesus. It is simply doing the church thing as a ritual. It is not taking the Lord seriously. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, I do not think the devil cares how many churches you build if only you have lukewarm preachers and people in them. <laughs> right? You have lukewarm preachers and people in them. Right in further, Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this. Look at the, what he says. If there be any one point in which the Christian church ought to keep its fervor at a white heat, it is concerning missions. If there be anything about which we cannot tolerate lukewarmness, it is in the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. That's what it is. Sending the gospel to a dying world. And so, friends, this morning, we see the challenge that Jesus gives to this church. I'm about to vomit you. I'm about to throw out. Because I'm disgusted with your lukewarmness. And further, what was the real condition of this church? Have a look with me, please, in your, in, in your Bibles. You say... <laughs> For you say, I am rich. This is the church, alright? I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Think about this. The church here is looking at themselves and they are saying, I am rich. I am wealthy. I have acquired all of these things. Sounds familiar, friends? We live in the most livable city in the world, don't we? So they say. We live in a country of consumerism. Our credit card debt is at its highest level. Did you know that? We live in a country that is continuously living in debt. We have a budget deficit. We were told there was an emergency. Now suddenly that there's a deficit and everyone's clamoring as to who is going to have the, get to the deficit and get rid of it so quickly. And so they're coming up with 10-year plans and so forth. We live in a country of consumerism. And so it's very possible even for us here at St. Stephen's in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a suburb like this to be able to say, well, I am rich. I am wealthy. I've got everything made. I live in a wealthy city. 
And perhaps this is a reference to, obviously, in Laodicea, to their money. As I said, this was the banking center. There were executives living there. They were rich. They had everything they needed. And they were saying, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I need nothing. Friends, I think we live in a society like us, that today. How can we share in a, a gospel in a country that says, well, we got it all. <laughs> we got it all. And so when these three are combined together, it conveys the idea of a self-reliant, self-sufficient church. And these things have crept in spiritually into this church. And they were proud, they were boasting, they were caught up in their wealth, which translated itself into spiritual pride. And they were so caught up in themselves that they were unaware of their true spiritual state as a church. And so spiritual pride has come in to their church. I have got it all made. I need nothing. Is that really the case, friends? <laughs> we may have everything around us and yet be so empty. You might have all the wealth in the world and it will not give you salvation. You might have all the goods in the world and it will not give you peace. You might have all the pride in the world to say, look at me. Remember Nebuchadnezzar. I, I, that's a classic story, isn't it, in the Bible. King Nebuchadnezzar. He was bragging. He was boasting. He was walking on the balcony of his great palace. Look at the things that I have done. And after a while, God struck him. Ended up being like an animal. Look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says, I have gained everything, and yet I lack everything. The point is, this church, Jesus describes the true condition of this church, and I hope it speaks to our hearts as well this morning. Look at verse 17. As we see in, in this passage, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do, need, uh, do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are, and there are five adjectives that are used here to describe the real condition of this church. It says this, that you are wretched, you are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Five things. <laughs> Contrast that to everything that, Jesus, that they thought about themselves. Their condition, they thought was perfect. They had everything. And Jesus says, five things about you. The Greek text would tell us this, actually, the first word there, the wretched. It's translated the wretched one. Not, not wretched one, but the wretched one. The emphasis is on the that is, the text is saying, and Jesus is saying, you are the wretched one. The ultimate example of wretchedness. Completely mixed up. You say you are rich, but I say you are absolutely poor. Right. You need pity, that is, 
the text would tell us, you need mercy. You are to be pitied. Pitiable. You are blind. You see, the church was so blind to its own state. They were spiritually blind to their own condition. Their spiritual state was one of spiritual blindness before Jesus. And they had lost it, friends. And they were naked. I'll come back to that in a moment. They were naked. Just completely bare. But they had everything. How does Jesus look at us this morning? Do we see ourselves here as well? It's easy to say, well, those Laodiceans, those guys, man, they should have known better. Those guys deserve the discipline of Jesus. We sometimes like this as well. Aren't we also consumed by everything that goes on around us in my own heart, my own life? Be driven by the things here in this world. The sense of spiritual pride. You know the Bible tells us that God hates pride. Okay? He hates it. But he, 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 in Peter he says, he, he hates pride but he exalts the humble. Lifts up the humble. You see, when we come to this God, we don't come saying how great I am, but we come with a sense of humbleness. And God has his way to bring spiritually proud people in his own way down as well. And he says, pride has got in here to this church. They are blind, they don't see it. They are naked and they don't see it. They need to be pitied upon everyone else. And they are wretched. What a condition for this church. Spiritually blind. What's the cure, friends? No one. Uh, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, Jesus does not leave this church without prescribing the cure, which is our fourth point this morning, for their condition. He counsels them to buy from me. Now, does that mean, friends, that we can buy salvation? I put that to you. Can you buy salvation? No? You're absolutely sure about that? You don't want to come and give me $10,000 or something? I'll give you, a, uh, give you all, uh, absorb you of all your sins. And, no, it doesn't work that way, right? We cannot buy salvation. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Of course not. He's using, we need to see this, he's using language that is familiar to this commercially minded business city. Jesus is using language that they understand. And he's using commercial terms. And he's saying, buy from me. In other words, come to me. And you see, we read Isaiah chapter 55 this morning. And what does God's word tell us in Isaiah 55? When God says in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, Christianity can be summarized in one word. By Jesus. Come. Come. Every other faith says, go, do this, do that, and you will be made right with God. Jesus says, come. What an invitation, isn't it? We know the text very well. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. You want to complete it? 
and I will give rest. Come. That's the imitation of a gracious Savior. That imitation comes to us again this morning. He counsels them. You see, he says to them, buy from me gold refined by fire. They are poor. But Jesus has real wealth. He has real gold. That is, he is it. He can give you, spiritually speaking, everything that you need. They are naked. But Jesus has white garments against the city's reputation of clothing, which was made by black wool. The city was well known to make clothing of black wool. And so, Jesus says, I'll give you a white garment. Free, come, buy from me. You see, nakedness was the ultimate humiliation in the ancient world. Unlike today, you have all these beaches that people can have nude beaches and all over the things happen, isn't it, in our society. There's no shame about nakedness. To be naked was the ultimate humiliation in the ancient world. Nahum chapter 3. While to be clothed in fine clothing was to receive honor. Daniel chapter 5. They are blind. This city, as we noted earlier, and you saw on the video clip, was well known for their eye ointment. But Jesus has an eye ointment that will remove their spiritual blindness. We need to say this here. See, they were boasting that they got the best eye salve that will take away your eye illness. Perhaps it was dealing with cataract or something in your eyes that caused the problem. And when you applied this medicinal ointment, it caused your eyes to heal. But Jesus says, you are blind. And I'm going to give you an eye salve that will remove the scales of your spiritual blindness. And you will see me. Remember the blind man? How he healed that blind man? Jesus in John chapter 9. So Jesus says to them, and to those who are lukewarm, and continue next week, come to me in faith, because he alone can enrich our spiritual poverty. He alone can clothe our spiritual nakedness. He alone can heal our spiritual blindness. That's why I chose Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. See that? Do you see that this morning, friends? And He alone can heal that spiritual blindness. And to the lukewarm church, to the self-reliant church, Jesus says, that he is disgusted by their half-heartedness. He is so disgusted that he wants to vomit. They are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. He says, come to me and he will enrich their lives. Come to me and find in me everything that you need. Come to me because I will fill you. I will clothe you. I will open your eyes. I will make you what you ought to be. And are we coming, friends, to Jesus? Yes, you come to faith in Christ. The Bible also tells us to work out our salvation with fear and in with trembling. And we keep on coming, don't we? <laughs> we don't come to Jesus first and say, Wow, that's great. It's all done now. Thank you, Lord. That's it. <laughs> we keep on coming to this Lord daily. 
we keep on coming for a refreshing work of grace by His Spirit in our lives. We keep on coming and saying, Lord, increase my fervor for you. Lord, increase my love for you. Take away the lukewarmness in my heart and give me a love and a passion and a joy and a delight in you, my Savior. And He will do that. So this morning, one, if you're not a Christian here, then I trust that you will come to this Jesus this morning. To us who are believers this morning, that we will not put ourselves and rejoice with all the pride that we have and what we haven't achieved and everything else, but we will keep on coming to this Jesus who will clothe us, refresh us, renew us, and strengthen us and take away that lukewarmness. I pray that this church here at St. Stephen's will not be, by His grace, a lukewarm church, but a church that lives for Jesus. And I trust that you pray for this church in your prayers. Please, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray you speak to our hearts, Lord, this morning. Take away from us any lukewarmness towards you, Lord. Perhaps we have drifted from you. Perhaps our love has grown cold and callous towards you, Lord. O Spirit of the living God, refresh us this morning. Renew us this day. And if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus... May such a person come to you, Lord, and buy from you in faith. For in Christ we have everything. In Jesus' name, amen.